Good morning, everyone. Everyone sleep all right? Praise the Lord. Are most of you from this area, Virginia, or did you drive in from somewhere else? Pennsylvania? Okay. All right. Where are you guys from? Virginia. Hey, that's good. That's good. And you're from Maryland. All right. So from around here. Praise God. Well, let's uh, start today with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for another day of life. Pray that you'd bless us now with your presence as we look at practical ways to enhance our devotional life. Pray that you'd grant us a special measure of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. As a segue into our topic, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 6, and this will be a, a nice introduction for our seminar on how to enhance our devotional life. Uh, now, <clears throat> this isn't Daniel class, but this is, this is free, no extra charge for this part here. But uh, Daniel, Daniel is uh, the one book that Jesus recommends that we read in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 15, he says, whoever reads and understands the book of Daniel will be blessed, especially in the end of time. How many chapters are in the book of Daniel? There's 12. Okay, so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. By the way, Daniel means, there's the L there, means literally God is my judge. Someone tell me what Laodicea means. People think it's lukewarm, but that's a characteristic. Laodicea literally means a people judged. So Daniel uh, is, is a type of God's people that are living in the end of time. Uh, the book of Daniel has 12 chapters. The first one is uh, kind of a summary of the entire book. It begins with the Babylonian captivity and ends with Cyrus. And the interesting thing about the book of Daniel is that it is, is built on this, on this chiastic structure where Daniel chapter 2 is parallel with Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 3 is parallel with Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 4 and 5 are parallel. And then you have this parallel here, here, and here. And as one of my seminary professors indicated, I don't know what to make of this, but he said it looks like a, a double menorah. Now, I don't know about that, but I'll take it. And uh, so this is a nice way of looking at the structure of Daniel. Chapter 1 is an introduction of the whole book. 2, 6, <clears throat> 2 and 7, 3 and 6, and so forth. Now, there's two genres in the book of Daniel. There's, there's stories and there's prophecies. There's, there's eight stories, and six of the stories are characteristics that we are to emulate. Two of, the, two of them are characteristics that we are to avoid. The two are four and five. You have Belshazzar, chapter five, and then you have Nebuchadnezzar's pride. The one we'll be looking at for our introduction today is chapter six, and uh, what is Daniel chapter six on? Remember? From your bedtime stories. I know it's morning, but yes, Daniel in the lion's den. Remember, there's a decree to worship the king, 
And if you're not in compliance, then you're food for the lions. Uh, what is the story in Daniel chapter 3? Remember that? The fiery furnace. If you don't worship the image, death decree. So similar themes, both in Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6, is the, is the mandate for worship. And if you don't worship, there's a death penalty. There's another chapter in the book of Revelation that parallels this. What chapter is that? This is Revelation chapter 13, where there's an image, and if you don't worship the image, there's a death decree. So there's a parallel there as well. Now, the interesting thing about Daniel chapter 3, who's missing in Daniel chapter 3? Yeah, Daniel. All right, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there, but where's Daniel? Now, some people may have said, like, Daniel was, was bowing down with the rest of the people. But, but just so that you can clarify that, Daniel clearly didn't because later on he's given the test. Some people assume that he was away on king, the king's business and so forth. But in Daniel chapter 6, he's a senior citizen. He's no longer this whippersnapper. And there's a change in regimes. And then you have this, this test that comes, the same test as in Daniel chapter 3 under a new regime, the Medo-Persian Empire. And you know the story. There's a decree that goes out. If you don't worship the king for this period of 30 days, then you're food for the lions. Now, now Daniel had this, this ritual, and it's important for our devotional life. So if you go to Daniel chapter 6, and <clears throat> let's see here. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. All right, this is our key passage for this morning. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as his custom since early days. Why toward Jerusalem? If you remember in the dedicatory prayer of Solomon that he gave when the temple was being inaugurated. He, he prayed this beautiful prayer. You can read about it in the book of Chronicles. And in one of the paragraphs in his prayer, he says, if your people are led away into captivity because of disobedience, he says something interesting. He, and while they're in exile, may they pray toward this place. Ah, pray toward this place. And so this is what Daniel did. And, and I believe that he did this from, from day one of his captivity. He prayed toward Jerusalem. He prayed toward Jerusalem. Now, there's something unique about the way that Daniel went about his prayers. Uh, how many times a day did he do it? Three times a day. So there was regularity, right? Regularity. But there was also a ritual to it. There was a ritual. He would open his windows toward Jerusalem and he would pray toward this place. So there was regularity, ritual, and another R, just for alliteration purposes, routine. There was regularity, routine, and ritual, which is an important thing for our devotional life. Now, the thing that we don't want to miss out of this passage is that he, he knew that that one day, if you can imagine it, using our imagination, just imagine that day he knows that if he prays the same way he always has, he's going to be food for the lions. Now, I had the privilege of going to the 
Orlando Zoo not long ago. That's what we do nowadays because <clears throat> we have young kids. <laughs> it's like, got to go to the zoo. So went to the zoo, and you always want to see the big cats. And I, I, at the Orlando Zoo, they, they don't have, they just have this big moat. And I just imagined myself just being dropped in there. Can you imagine that? And, and these, these animals, you know where they go? They go for the jugular, like right here. Ah, can you just, oh, I don't even want to think about that. There was this one guy, Siegfried Horn. Do you remember that? A number of years ago? You remember that? It was the most gruesome thing that happened because they were doing this circus, and he had trained this young lion, and I think he tripped or something, triggered that, that instinct. It wasn't a young lion anymore, and that lion lunged at him, went for his jugular, and shook him like a rag doll. Now, he survived. He survived that ordeal. But if there's any sort of, any sort of, um, I don't even know what the right, uh, hor hor horrible way of dying, I can think of a lot of better ways to die than being eaten by a big cat, okay? So this day, he knows, he knows that if he prays the way that he's always done for the last, who knows how many years, 70 years, 70 years, because his whole life, he, he went through the entire 70-year captivity. So 70 years of praying, rhythm, routine, ritual, always the same way, same time, same place. And people knew. But this morning, it's different. You can imagine, they're out there, you know, black ops, you know, FBI, they got their Kevlar on. They're like, is he going to do it today? Get ready, you know, and, and he knows that day. Now, what's the temptation? What's the temptation? Rationalize. Yeah. Pray, pray in your home. <laughs> Don't open the windows. After all, God's going to understand, right? God's going to understand. Just don't open the windows. So there's a thousand reasons not to. But he knows that if he doesn't, that's a public testimony that he's changed. So that day, it meant something different. And, and they're watching their, you know, they're looking at their their watches, and they're like, it's about that time. And sure enough, that day, opens it up, and he does it. And once he kneels down, he knows that could be his death sentence. So kneels down, rah, you know, break in there, read his Miranda rights, zip tie him, and he's off. Now here's the lesson, here's the lesson, and it applies to our seminar. Daniel would rather die than miss his devotions. Huh? Okay. So Daniel would rather be eaten by a lion than miss his time with God. Now think about that. What are the reasons why we miss our devotions? Sleep in, too much pizza, peanut butter and pickles the night before. All right, whatever it is, you're just too busy. But, but this tells you the importance of the devotional life. Okay, So he's a type of the last generation that's to live before Jesus comes. Anytime you're tempted to think of missing your devotions, think of Daniel. His devotions were his highest priority. Highest priority. Now, when we think about our highest priority, I used to do youth ministry for a number of years, and uh, 
these teenagers, the elevator doesn't go to the top floor, hormones, you know what I'm talking about. God and parents are on the bottom of the totem pole of their priorities. And so I did this illustration. I said, look, let's say you're flying across the Atlantic, transatlantic flight. Pilot comes over the airways and says, both engines have shut off. We're about to make impact into the Atlantic Ocean. Five minutes. Use your time well. And I asked these teenagers, what would you do in those last five minutes? I said, how many of you play video games for the last five minutes? Not a single one hand went up. I said, how many of you watched Netflix last five minutes? Not a single hand went up. I asked the young lady, how, much, how many of you go to the bathroom, put makeup on because you want to die pretty? Not a single hand went up. I said, how many of you, what would you do? All of them said, pray. And I said, what's the next thing you do? They said, if we could, we'd call our parents. Huh. What would you say? All of them said, three words. I love you. Whoa, instinctive, isn't it? Instinctive. Everyone knows what to do when you have five minutes left in life. And as Blaise Pascal said, he's learned to define life backwards and live it forward. In other words, when you come to the end of life, if we were going to die in an hour, we would all know what to do. We'd all have devotions. <laughs> and it would be the most profound devotions that we've ever had. All right? We all know what to do. So if you're going to climb a ladder, you've got to make sure it's up against the right wall. No one climbs a ladder and they're like, oh, wrong wall. And yet many people do that in life. So when you look at it, when, you, when your life is truncated and you only have a few minutes left to live, your priorities crystallize. And at the top, at the top is always devotion and prayer. And so we want to live our lives in that priority. And this is an important key for us to understand in terms of of our devotional life, in terms of our devotional life. Now, let me give you a few practical tips, and then we'll go back to our exegesis here, is that you should have a routine for how you get up in the morning. Now, here's the thing. The key to how you get up tomorrow actually begins the night before. Uh, not rocket science, but, but it begins the night before. Now, I have a, remember, remember what Daniel did, rhythm, routine, ritual. I have a routine for how do I go to bed every single night, okay? I have a routine. And uh, one of them involves, um, it's amazing how these habits work. One of them, I'm, I'm kind of like OCD when it comes to my teeth. I have to floss every single night. Now, my dentist loves me for it, but uh, it's like one of those things. If I don't floss, my teeth just feel like, I feel incomplete. And so that's just the way. So, so I floss, and then I have this little dental kit that I pick every tooth. Okay, I'm OCD. Pray for me. I go and, and do my thing. And then, and then I shower. After my shower, I have this ritual. I have this ritual. Now, you need to figure out something that works for you. I have this ritual. I, I have this, this urge, because I've done it so many times. After I shower, I always, always set out my clothes for the next day. Now, there's a reason why I do that. I have a six-year-old and two-year-old, and Lord knows I don't want to wake them up, okay? So, and I don't want to be stumbling around in the dark trying to find my clothes for the next morning. So, so I have this ritual. I, I go out, I get my clothes for the next day, and I put it on the kitchen table. And on the kitchen table, I have, I have this clipboard. This clipboard goes with me everywhere, okay? And it has my journal. 
has my journal. I put this on the table, and I have my Bible, cheap $25 Bible that I bought on Amazon. I have, a, I have an expensive one, but the problem with that is I don't, I don't mark it. So I said, look, I'm going to get a cheap one. So, so look, Bible, this, and then I have an iPod. Remember what that is? It doesn't have Wi-Fi on it. It got it on eBay for like a few dollars and so forth. It has the entire uh, Bible on there. And, uh, and Patriarchs and Prophets, Desire of Ages, and Great Controversy. So I put that there. I have a flashlight. So I just have my little thing. Boom, 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 boom. Put it out. So the next day is just grab and go. It's just grab and go. And this is what I do. So I, I put it all out there. And, and I have, look, look, my time with God is so precious, I invest. So I have this, like, wrap-around eye mask <laughs> so I can sleep better. And, and here's another thing. Do, never put your phone by your bed. Studies have shown that your phone by your bed diminishes the quality of your sleep, just, just having that thing there. They also say no blue light, minimum of 30 minutes before you go to bed, this, this type of stuff. No screen time. This thing just messes you up, all right? How many of us go to bed with our phones? I mean, this Lord help us. Okay, so, so th- this is the thing. Minimum a half an hour, more likely an hour before you go to bed. No screen time. And if you want to go to bed really good, read. Put you to sleep. All right, Lord have mercy. Okay, so, so that's what you do. So my, 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 I encourage you to write down your evening ritual. You need to write it out. Now, I have... I have the privilege of teaching freshmen at the college where I'm a religion professor at. And what I noticed when I would visit the dorms, the men's dorm, I don't visit the ladies' dorm, but I would walk in these, in these dorms, particularly the theology majors. Lord help our theology majors. They can go up there and preach great sermons. But I visited the dorm and their rooms. It looked like a bomb went off in there. They're eating at all times of the times of the day. Their, their schedule's a mess, a disaster. Anytime going to bed, anytime getting up, and I'm just like, you're, you're never going to make it long term. I don't care how eloquent you are in the pulpit. So I visited these guys, and I realized we need to do a cultural change on our campus, on our college campus. And so there was this habit tracker that I instituted, and these guys are, are stickler for points. So I'd give them points for going to bed at a certain time, getting seven to nine hours of sleep per night, waking up at a certain time, eating, eating breakfast, you know, basic things like this, and we'd have a habit tracker. And it's been transformative because I'd go and, and I'd go and walk in the morning and I'd walk into the dorm at 5 a.m. and I'd just walk and I'd see which lights are on. It was amazing. It's freshmen. Freshmen up at 4 or 5 a.m. to spend time with God. It was remarkable. It was remarkable. So I encourage you uh, to, to write out your routine for evening and morning, how you go to bed and how you wake up. Now, it doesn't have to be like mine, but find something that works for you. Now, here's the thing. Do you know what time Tim Cook gets up, the CEO of Apple? 3.45. 3.45 a.m. Do you know what time the CEO of Walt Disney gets up? 4 a.m. 4 a.m. These are people of the world. People of the world are getting up. And the reason why they say they get up that, that early 
is, is because that's the time that they can think. That's the time they can think and strategize. Now, if the world does that, how much more God's people? Now, look, if, if you're going to meet the president tomorrow, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, it's like you're going to be sure you go to bed at a certain time, at least I would. I'm going to determine what clothes I'm going to wear the next day, and I'm going to get up at a certain time. Now, that's, a, that's an appointment with a mere mortal. What about an appointment with God? What about an appointment with God? So, evening routine. All right? This is my evening routine. I, I recommend you write it out. You should have a way to go to bed. The book Education, Ellen White says, every young person be trained, should be trained how to go to bed, how to wake up in the morning. Regularity in how, how you do this. So, so I set out my things for the next day. Boom, 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 boom. The next day, I get up, and it's just plug and play. And by the way, before I go to bed the night before, I never use an alarm clock. I say, Lord... When you want me up, you get me up. This morning, I was up at 345. I was up at 345. All right? So it's amazing. It's amazing how it works. So I go to bed, and then the next morning, I just get up, and it's all there. Grab my Bible, grab my flashlight, put it in my ear, you know, and then when I'm at home, I just walk. I walk on campus. And while I'm walking, I'm praying. And then I come back, and I have a, I have a journal. I have a journal. And in this journal, I write, I write my reflections for that day. I just started a new one. I filled the other one up. So get a journal. Get a journal. And, and, and write out your, your devotional thought for that day. Now, I had a handout that I wanted to pass out to you. I think, I think Samuel's printing it out. Is Samuel printing out my second handout? Yeah, check. So I'll, I'll give you that handout on practical ways that... You can apply your devotional life each and every day. But this is important. This is important. They've done a study with pastors and asked them, like, how's your devotional life? And it was, it was, it was appalling. It was appalling that even for pastors in ministry, they were struggling with their, with their devotional life. Now, this is not something to beat yourself up over. Every day is a new day, and you can have a new beginning. But you want to get in the habit, like Daniel, of rhythm, routine, and ritual. Rhythm, routine, and ritual. Now, we want to transition here to this model that we talked about yesterday. And it's... This, sorry, I'm not an artist here. Data. And uh, we talked about presuppositions here. Talked about presuppositions. Oh, perfect. Can you help me pass this out? This one, yeah. Pass that out for me, and then that one. Okay, great. Now, let me, uh, actually, let's just do this one for now. Okay, here. There we go. Thank you. Oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. I want to give you this handout here and <clears throat> go through it with you together. And it's how to study the Bible in your personal devotions. I use this for my class when I teach it to freshmen. 
And let me go this, through this with you as a group. I'll read, I'll read it through here. Okay. How to study the Bible in your personal devotions. There is probably nothing more important to a disciple of Jesus Christ than spending time alone with him at the beginning of each day through the word. To truly follow Christ, we must invest time in searching the scriptures, seeking personal insights into life, and listening for the master to speak to our heart. Genuine, consistent fellowship with the Savior lies at the heart of Christian discipleship. We call this time the morning watch. We suggest getting a special notebook just for your morning watch. Get it stocked with paper and have a pencil and, or pen and a Bible nearby. Keep your notebook organized so you do not waste time trying to figure out where things are. It's also helpful to have a plan. The paragraphs below suggest a few simple keys to studying the Bible effectively and making the most of your time with God. So I think you just get a, a notebook. You can get one for 99 cents at Walmart, those composition books, but it doesn't have to be fancy. And I highly recommend that you write rather than type. They found that the, the way that your brain engages versus a screen uh, is, uh, is quite different than when you write. And uh, highly recommend that you start with a notebook. So let's just go through uh, these, these practical pointers here. A daily study plan. Prepare. Before beginning your study of the Word, spend some time in prayer asking God to teach you through His Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can make the Word come alive. See John 14, 26, John 16, 13. And as you pray, present specific needs, problems, questions, plans to the Lord and ask Him to speak to you about those areas. Number two, paraphrase. Take a notebook, jot down the date and passage you'll be studying, cover as much as you have time to digest thoroughly, <coughs> thoroughly even if it's only 68 verses, Read the passage through a couple times until you begin to grasp what the writer is saying. Then write a brief paraphrase of the passage in your own words. It's often best to read through one book of the Bible at a time, picking up each morning where you left off the night before. We recommend starting with the life of Jesus found in the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, so paraphrase is a, is a very simple way of doing it. Now, I described a a exegetical method, but uh, you, you don't necessarily have to do that in your morning devotions either. You just write out the passage in your own words. It's a very simple way of doing it. Number three, you go to principles. Next, spend some time meditating and imagine the passage using the principles from the spirit of prophecy below. And this is where we talk about imagination. Be thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. Uh, here's one from Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing, page one. Let us in imagination go back to that scene, and as we sit with the disciples on the mountainside, enter into the thoughts and feelings that filled their hearts. Understanding what the words of Jesus meant to those who heard them, we may discern in them a new vividness and beauty, and may also gather for ourselves deeper lessons. So prepare, paraphrase, principles you can write out, and... Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to claim? An attitude to change? And some of those other questions as well. And then number four, it just, as you read Scripture, then you write in your journal your prayer response to God. So 
The Word of God is God speaking to us. Prayer is us talking back to Him, and you write out your prayer response to God. This is very simple, and it is something that is practical for your daily life. Now, there's another resource I believe they're selling down at the bookstore here, and that's the Correlated Bible Readings. It is, uh, it's remarkable how, how our people are not familiar with the red books, the spirit of prophecy. And I had the privilege when I graduated from, from college, I went to Heartland College back in 1999, and one of the requirements they had back then <clears throat> is to read through the testimonies. Yes, sir. Yeah. I think that with Ellen White, uh, what I've done with people that are studying or have challenges, uh, in the beginning I'm like, hey, just, just read her. We're told to test the prophets, and one of the books is Steps to Christ. I just have them read her. Now, I'll be the first one to acknowledge that sometimes Ellen White has been abused, where, where people take her writings and <clears throat> use it, kind of weaponize it, if you're following me. And I think that that may have been the experience there, and, and I empathize with that. I think that if you read her, if you read her, and that's why the correlated Bible readings that I'm recommending is, is of a tremendous value, is that my experience has been, anytime I read Ellen White, she always leads me back to the Bible. She always reads, leads me back to the Bible. And <clears throat> I think that I think that the, the gift of prophecy, the gift of prophecy is something that, it, it, it's a gift. It's a gift. And we, we can appreciate the message that she has. And uh, I read through the testimonies, all nine volumes of the testimonies. I actually did it in a month. I don't recommend that you do that. But uh, I, I did do that. But, but one thing that I wish I had done was to read to read the conflict series, Steps to Christ, Thoughts Amount of Blessings, and Christ Object Lessons, before I read the testimonies. Because those books uh, provide the principles. The testimonies are applications of those principles to unique circumstances and contexts. And the correlated Bible readings, I think they have them available in the bookstore, is where you can read through the Bible and the conflict series in one year, three years, or five years. They have different plans that you can follow. And it's just been a tremendous blessing. I did that uh, in one year, and then it was so, such a blessing, I did it in another year. And it, it, is, it is a great blessing to, to read through the spirit of prophecy in that way. Now, going back to... Uh, do you have any questions about this? This is, this is pretty practical about how, how to have devotions in your personal life, but I highly recommend journaling and, and using scripture in that, in that regard. Now, going back to this here, uh, we, we talked yesterday about the presence of presuppositions and how those presuppositions affect the data and the interpretation of that data. We also talked about the influence of the Holy Spirit, how we need to be born of the Spirit in order to understand the things of the Spirit. And we, we talked yesterday about method as well. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we follow what is called the historical grammatical method rather than the historical critical method. 
meaning that we believe that God inspires the words of Scripture, which is why the grammar matters. The historical critical method assumes that God did not inspire the words, and so the word is, is not important to the meaning of the passage. Uh, I'd like to spend a little bit of time here on the data. Now, if you change any one of these elements, you will arrive at a different interpretation. If you change the methodology, if you change the presuppositions, but also you change, if you change the data. The data we, we follow as Protestants is sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone. Now, Catholics follow what is called the tradition-centered method, so it's scripture plus, scripture plus tradition. And because they follow that, that uh, foundation for their data, they arrive at a different conclusion. And then you have the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. But as Seventh-day Adventists, we follow sola scriptura. And this is a, an important, important discussion for us to have when it comes to our sources, when it comes to our sources. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And take a look at this idea of what we call the primacy of Scripture. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 13, we have known what is known as the walk to Emmaus. And these two disciples are walking around after the death of Jesus, and they are disciples that are obscure, meaning that they're disciples that we don't know much about. This is the first time they're mentioned, and one of them, his name is Cleopas. We don't even know the other one's name. And they're talking together. And Jesus walks up to them. And this is the last chapter of the book of Luke, and he records this, this long conversation. So it's in verse 17 that Jesus says to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to them, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? Now, what's the problem here? What, what's the problem that could be resolved very quickly? The disciples of Jesus assume that he is he's dead, okay? So, what is the most efficient way to solve this problem from a, from a utilitarian standpoint of view? How, how does he solve it? Huh? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm Jesus, right? I'm Jesus. So, he walks up. Hey, guys, I'm Jesus. Problem solved. But this is painful. Painful. Now, does he know that they have this problem? Yeah. Does he know what they're talking about? Yes. So he walks up. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah. He's dead. And then then he says to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was going to be the one that redeems Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of the company who arrived at the tomb 
early astonished us, and when they did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now this is the key passage here. Look at this, verse 25. And he said to them, O fools, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Look at verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What does Jesus give them? He gives them a Bible study. Now, what kind of Bible study does he give? The word all is in there. All right? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures concerning himself. It's comprehensive. This is what we call an exhaustive Bible study. Now, it's a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Hmm? I wish I had the notes from that Bible study. This is the best Bible study ever given. Okay, from Jesus himself. So he's walking there. Now, look, what's the problem? They think that Jesus is, is dead and that thereby he's not the Messiah. So he's walking among them and he says, look, O fools, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And he says, look, and he goes through every single messianic prophecy. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them all the scriptures concerning himself. So this is, this is the most amazing Bible study on earth. Now, look, the disciples are all in Jerusalem, the main disciples. But he takes the time to take a seven-mile walk to prove a point. Hmm? You can't miss this. And out of all the things that Luke could have recorded, he records this, this walk to Emmaus. And so here's the story. He gives this Bible study... He gives the Bible study, and in verse 28, and they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. So so basically, his job's done. (laughs) He gives this Bible study, this exhaustive Bible study, the most phenomenal Bible study ever given in human history, going from Genesis to Malachi, and then afterwards, he's like, all right, guys, we'll see you. Now, this is a good plug for hospitality. Right? Okay? Sometimes we don't want to be hospitable because we're tired. But these guys were hospitable. They're like, no, 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 no. Stay with us. Stay with us. Now, if they were, I, I, I believe if they didn't do that, Jesus would have been like, see ya. Just gone on. And what an opportunity they would have missed. Right? What an opportunity they would have missed. And so, So they're like, no, no, stay with us. And so he sits down with them. He sits down with them. And and here it is. Here it is. He indicated he would have gone farther. But they constrained him. In other words, they were like, they urged him. They urged him. And if you know anything about Eastern culture, this is how it works. Oh, please stay with us. Oh, I don't want to bother you. No, no, please stay with us. Oh, no, no. And please stay with us. Oh, I guess I will. Yeah, you know, that's how this thing works. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, I'm busy. I got to go on. No, please stay. And then he's like, oh, I guess I will. All right, so, so constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in 
and stayed with them. And it came to pass as he sat at the table and he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them that their eyes were open and they knew him and, his, and he vanished from their eyes. So this is what take, he says, stay with us. And so he sits down and they're like, hey, can you, can you bless the food for us before we eat? And he's like, surely. And they're like, ah, mm, that, oh, I've seen that. <gasps> Jesus. Poof. And he's gone. And he's gone. And look, look at what they remember. Look at what they remember. Verse 32. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked on the road and while he o- talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? What do they remember? The Bible study. They remember the Bible study. Okay? You can't miss that. You can't miss that. So, they run all the way back to Jerusalem. That's what the, that's what the thing goes. <laughs> and, and so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. I and mean, they're like, forget this. You know, they leave, this, leave the soup, leave the bread. And, they, and they, they just went seven miles and they run all the way back in the dark. And the book Desire of Ages says that someone went with them. Someone went with them. Jesus actually went with them. This is a remarkable story. And... <clears throat> Rose up that very hour and found the eleven who were with them and gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. And he appeared to Simon, and they told the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Verse 36, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. So then they doubt if it's him. Look in verse 44. Look in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of what? Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Two Bible studies. Exhaustive from Moses and all the prophets, from Genesis to Malachi, he gives this exhaustive Bible study. The question is, did Jesus believe in sola scriptura? Mm. Did he? Now, some people say, I'm a, I'm a New Testament Christian. <clears throat> well, I am too. But, but the New Testament wasn't written here. Jesus believed in the Old Testament. He believed in the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we talk about experience, uh, we live in an age today where experience is, is king. It's all about an experience. It used to be where you belong only when you believe. In other words, you believe and then you belong. But now we live in a society where especially the younger generations, are we, we want to belong, and believing is irrelevant. But, but when we talk about experience here, in the mind of Jesus, there was something that had a higher priority than, than experience. 
It was scripture. In other words, he didn't want the disciples to believe based on the experience they had with him by seeing his hands and his feet. They wanted him to, he wanted them to believe based on scripture, based on scripture. Now, there's another passage that I want to look at in 1 Peter that highlights this very point. It's actually 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What experience is Peter talking about here? Okay, Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, look, what I'm telling you is the truth. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It is a reality. But he says that there is something that is more sure. Someone read from the King James, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Someone have the King James here? Oh, yeah, read the King James. Huh? Yeah, New King James, me too. Me too. All right, so I want you to see what, what uh, Peter is talking about here. So, so you have the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. There were, there were only three disciples that were there. Peter, James, and John, and then you had Moses and Elijah and Jesus. That's, that's pretty up there. Now, Peter had come to you today and said, look, believe that Jesus is Messiah because I was there at the Mount of Transfiguration, exclusive front row seat. How many of you would believe him? I'd be like, that's pretty credible. That's pretty credible. But he says that there's something in the King James that is more sure than the Mount of Transfiguration experience, and that's Scripture. That's scripture. Now, if you, were to, if you had tickets, if you had tickets, you don't even need tickets nowadays, but if you had tickets to a Bible study versus tickets to the Mount of Transfiguration, which one would you rather take? Come on now. Okay? I'd be, I'd be like, Mount of Transfiguration, please, right? I mean, that's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I want to see Moses and Elijah and hear what they talked about, Right? Uh, I, I think any worldling out there would even want to be there just, just for the experience. But what Peter is saying, that there's something more sure than that, a Bible study, a Bible study. So you see in the hermeneutic of Jesus and the hermeneutic of Peter, the thing that has primacy is Scripture, which is why Jesus gives a Bible study on the walk to Emmaus before revealing himself. And that's why Peter says we have something more sure than the Mount of Transfiguration experience. It's Scripture. Now the question is, why? Why did God do it like this? Why, why did he make it so that our authority needs to be in a book? This, this needs to hold primacy. Why is that? Why is that? Why do you think, why do you think he, I mean, he made up the rules, didn't he? He could, have, he could have put it in something else. 
But this is our ultimate authority. Why? Why? Yes. Well, if he showed himself to the two people walking Emmaus, he would have convinced those two people, and then you'd have to believe them. Mm. But when he gave them a Bible study, now they had a tool mm. to convince everybody who hadn't been on the road to Emmaus, mm. something that they could use for everybody, and that mm. we can use today. Mm. That's right. That's right. That is the truth. That is the truth. Yes, brother. I think in the last days, mm. the wife says, if you go on yes. Yes, that's right. You have to go on the word of God because in the end of time, there'll be deception. There'll be deception in the end of time. Now, here's the thing. Those that are alive when Jesus comes will not only see Jesus face to face, they'll see the devil face to face except he won't look like the devil. If you read the book, Great Controversy, Jesus appears, quote-unquote, except he's, he's not Jesus. It's Satan masquerading like Jesus. And, and she says that he comes quoting Scripture. He looks like Jesus. He sounds like Jesus. She says he actually heals people. And nowadays, with the cell phone, can you imagine Facebook Live? YouTube Live, I mean, you don't even need CNN or Fox News. It's like, can, can you imagine? Rio de Janeiro, Jesus is walking the streets. All right? Every cell phone is on him. And he looks like him. He sounds like him. Now, uh, the Bible says don't go, but I, I believe you shouldn't even watch that. Don't even click on it. It's probably got a billion views. All right? if, if Jesus is in Washington, D.C., just not far from here, Walking on the mall, don't go. Don't go. Why? Because when you go, do you think it's going to feel spiritual? I'm sure it will. I, I remember for one of my classes, it was called Inner Church Dialogue, I had to go to Mass. I didn't participate, but I had to go to Mass in Notre Dame, early morning Mass. And... Uh, it was in the Basilica there, and it was like 7 a.m., and the place was packed. It was packed, and it was packed with young people. I couldn't believe it. I mean, there was no, there was no rock band on the stage, no nothing. It, it was a very traditional service, and people walked in, and they kneeled, and then they went, they filed in, and, and they had the Sistine Choir. You couldn't see them, but you could hear them, and they're singing in Latin, Ave Marie, uh, whatever it was, and, and, the, and the priest comes down the center aisle with the, with the, with the sensor. He's and, and, and thousands of people, all drinking out of the same cup. I was like, oh, Lord, have mercy. And this, was before, this was before COVID. I was like, if I was a Catholic, I'd be the first one up there. I'd be like, ah, you know. You know. But, uh, but anyways, the, the craziest thing was, the craziest thing was, in the middle of that service, you have the high vaulted ceilings talking about the transcendence of God, and you're there, and... and and the thing is, I walked out of there and I felt spiritual. I was like, whoa, I just feel like I've been in the presence of God. When I'd actually been in the heart of the beast. But, but anyways, uh, uh, and, and I'm not here to judge the individual experience, but what I'm telling you is that our senses and our experience can be, can be deceived. You can actually feel spiritual, but you can't go by feeling. Yes, sister. 
Yeah. Even the, That's right. Yes, thank you for quoting that. Thank you for the words of Jesus. Don't go. Don't go. So uh, there, there is going to be a time, I believe in many of our lifetimes, when, when this phenomena is going to take place. So, so don't click it on YouTube Live or Facebook because what you're going to experience is, is, is going to be a part of the deception. And, and you need to base it on this. Now, even though all of your senses are crying out to you and saying, this is real, this, is, this has to be the Christ, you know that according to the text, it can't be Jesus, because Jesus never touches the ground at the second coming. Yes. Yes. That's right, at the second coming, at the real second coming. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yes. He might be. Saying, I doubt what he said. Yeah. That's right. You're kind of telling the universe, I doubt. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Some people might go because they're curious too, but don't don't let curiosity get to you. So the point is, sola scriptura. You have to go by this. You have to go by this, and. One reason why our devotions are so important is that we have to come to the place where even though our senses are telling us this has to be true, we have to believe that the text is telling us to the contrary. And we need to go by this rather than our senses. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. There's a, there's a book called Thunder of Justice that documents Marian apparitions that have taken place over the last several hundred years. And I was watching uh, the Today Show uh, a number of years ago, and it was, it was so remarkable. These guys are sitting there drinking their, drinking their coffee and everything, you know, the morning show. And uh, they said, hey, everybody, there's a Marian apparition that's taking place live on TV. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And so they had their cameras there, and it was this, this form of Mary that was coming on a wall live that morning. And so they're like, they just trained their cameras on that, and they said, oh, isn't that interesting? Uh, an apparition of Mary is just happening. And they're like, all right, now we're going to change to the weather. And I was like, this is like, and, and sports and so forth. But it, it's become such, such a phenomenon. And they had this one instance where this Madonna in South America I was reading about was weeping uh, real tears. And one detective that was a skeptic caught the tears in a vial and he sent it off to the lab without telling them what it was. And it was real human tears. Real human tears. Um, People claimed that they would take uh, a handkerchief and take those tears and and wipe it on them. And a crippled lady was healed of, of her malady. And and several days later, this was like in the 1960s, there was a crowd of 13,000 people that were parading through the center of town with this weeping Madonna. And so th- these are real phenomena that are going to take place. 
and it's going to become more and more frequent until the end of time. But there's going to be this quote-unquote crazy group of people in the end of time that are going to go by the hermeneutic of Jesus. Let's say scripture above experience. We're to have an experience, but it's always to be based on scripture. And we need to be a group of people that live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All right, do we need a break or do we just keep going? How many of you need a break? Anyone need a break? I guess not. All right, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. All right, so we, we have, we have this, this thing that we call hermeneutics. Presuppositions matter, as we noted in our first presentation. They, they affect what we see. We project onto the data. We talked about methodology, the historical grammatical method, and we also talked about the data, which is the sola scriptura method. Now, I want to I pass this out here, this example of interpretation, application, <clears throat> and interpretation. And uh, so this is an example sheet. Uh, I'm not going to go through it with you, but this is an example of what I'm about to do here on the board with a different passage. So when you look at a, a passage of Scripture, you can do this in your morning devotions, but you can also do it in your personal study time. And let's take an example out of this, and let's go to Mark chapter 2. So let's go to Mark chapter 2. And... Take a look at this story here. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And they came to him bringing a paralytic, who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And so when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So there's our story. There's our story. And uh, I'm just going to make a few observations about this story here. And We'll go through observation, interpretation, application all in one. So, so you just want to observe the passage and, and see what's taking place. So, so here, here is the paralytic. And he wants to come to Jesus. But there's, there's four friends. I'm assuming there are four. I think there are four. Four friends that, that are critical to bring this person to Jesus. Okay? Were there obstacles to bring this person to Jesus? Yeah. yeah. All right. What was one of the obstacles? The crowd? Okay. Uh, huh? Distance. So... Yeah, the man's paralyzed. All right, the, the man's paralyzed. So, so look at this. This man is physically incapable of coming to Jesus on his own. You following me? Physically incapacitated. He's dependent on his friends to bring him to Jesus. That's just an observation. Do you feel sermon coming out of this? 
I mean, do you feel a sermon coming out of this? Okay, so this man can't come to Jesus on his own. He's dependent on whom? Four friends to bring him to Jesus. All right? Physically incapacitated. Incapacitated. Now, in the minds of these four friends, what do you sense from this story? What do you sense from the story? These friends were not like, oh, it's just not going to happen today. Uh, too many people. Oh, whoo. I mean, do you think this was like an easy thing? You ever try to carry dead weight before? Okay, and it's not like they had a nice stretcher. I don't know what kind of statue stretcher it was. Um, it, it certainly was not, not, not nice ones they have today. But it's like this dead weight, you know, it's like, whoo. Oh, what if they were like, ah, manana, not today. They weren't like that. There was a sense of what? Urgency. Right? In other words, it's now or never. They're trying to get in, too many people. Then they're like, all right, let's take a break. So it took some creativity. And they're like, hmm, hmm. You ready to do this? Now, you ever been with people that you're embarrassed to be with? I'm like that. I'm like that. Some people are just so embarrassing. I'm like, look, brother, when you're done with your foolishness, it's like, I'll hang out with you. But for right now, I don't know you. Don't call my name. Don't call my number. You, you, it's like, I'm just like, oh, I don't know you. You know, they're acting like fools over there, whatever it is. But, but in this case, these guys, are, these guys are bold. Bold. Holy boldness. They have a sense of urgency and boldness. Can you imagine? All right? They're up there. They're like, <laughs> ripping up this roof. Right? And it probably took a long time because it's like, I don't think they got a, I don't think they just let him down head first. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, <laughs> with the holes big enough. I think probably they put it big enough so they could put the stretcher down. Right? I mean, they love this brother. Not going to just put him down head first. All right? So I imagine they're ripping this thing up. They're ripping this thing up. Do you think there was a little bit of self consciousness to that? Boldness? They're ripping this thing up. And people are like, what are you doing? I mean, he's in the middle of his sermon. Huh? It's not even their house. It's not even their house. They're up there. All right, so you're using your imagination. All right? It comes a lot. How do you think they're feeling? Like, uh, you think this is hard? No, we got to do it. Because what's the priority in their mind? This brother's got to come to Jesus, or he's a dead man. Right? So they're, they're doing this thing. Okay? Now, Here's the application. What are you willing to do to bring your friend to Jesus? Hmm? Okay, so there's the application. Now, in your devotional life, as you're reading this, you're like, Lord, help me to love people like that. Right? Help me to love people like that. Help me to have a sense of urgency. Forgive me for my lackadaisical spirit. All right? Forgive me for thinking that it's not urgent today. Help me to be like these four friends. Now, here's the thing. There are people out there, they may not be physically incapacitated, but they are morally incapacitated. You have people in your life today that are morally incapacitated. They don't love God. They don't pray. They don't read their Bible. They can care less about God. And from a human perspective... A human perspective. 
if they were to die today, they would be lost. Right? You know people in your life like that? From a human perspective, if they were to die there today, if they were to breathe their last today, they would be lost. Right? Morally incapacitated. In other words, they don't even feel their need for Jesus. They literally have to be carried to him. And you, perhaps, are the only Jesus they will ever know. You're their only connection. Their only hope of ever bringing them to Jesus. Because they're not going to come on their own. Morally incapacitated. And it took boldness. So, so these, these four friends are, are bringing this person to Jesus. All right? So, so in your morning devotions, as you read this story, you're like, oh, Lord, help me to be like these four friends. Help me to be like that. Help me to have that boldness, that love for souls from Christ. And you write this, this prayer to God. This, this, this story comes alive. All right? And this is where the imagination comes in. And so they let this man down. They let this man down. All right? Mark chapter 2. They let this man down. And in verse, this is why we follow the historical grammatical method. All right? Verse 5. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is the, this is the historical grammatical method. Now, Luke chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. Here it is. When Jesus saw their faith. Okay. Now, this whole sheet I gave you about observation, because we follow the historical grammatical method, we believe that the grammar matters. Okay? We believe that the words are inspired by God, which means that we pay attention to the details. Now, here's the thing. Jesus... Jesus heals this man. Jesus heals this man. But there's an important word here. You see that? You see that word there? There. It didn't say his. We don't follow the historical critical method, which says none of all this is nonsense, okay? We follow the historical grammatical method. There. Remember English class? Third person, but more important than third person, plural. Plural. Now, who's the there? Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, I believe that it also includes him, but Jesus sees this. Jesus sees this. Now, look, in Scripture, in order for Jesus to do something above and beyond what he normally does, he needs authorization. So he's looking for something. But he sees their faith, and he's like, I got the right now. Boom. You following me? He sees their faith. Their faith. Now this is the powerful, uh, a powerful principle that emerges here. Now, now when you're studying the scriptures, uh, you want to go what we call Micro, macro. Okay? So you're looking at the micro right now. You want to go to the macro, and the macro is just the principle. 
Okay, what's the principle here? Evidently, evidently, uh, and I noted this in our Sabbath school time yesterday, you can have faith for somebody else. There's a whole theology there. You can actually have faith for somebody else. This is, this is remarkable, remarkable. And, and on the grand scheme of the, of the macro of the great controversy, is like when you pray for someone that is morally paralyzed and you say, Lord, help them. I believe. I have faith that you can help this individual, that you can spiritually heal this individual. Jesus sees that faith and he's able to act. He's able to act. And, uh, and what we noted yesterday is that this is what we call secondary authorization. Secondary authorization. There's something called primary authorization, which is when you give your consent, but there's something called secondary authorization, where you can give consent for someone else, and this has application, of course, to intercessory prayer. You ever wonder why pray? For somebody, if God loves them more than you do and he wants to save them more than you do, uh, you ever wonder that? I'm like, <laughs> why, why, why go through the trouble of praying? I mean, is it, is it as though God's like, oh, I guess I'll save them now. It's like, oh, I guess I care about them now that you prayed for. That's not, that's not true. Jesus wants to save them. He cares about them. But in a sense, his hands are tied because of the great controversy, because of the rules that are there. But when you, when you have faith for somebody else, when you pray for somebody else, Jesus is like, whoo, praise God, I got the papers. I got the papers. Uh, you, you know when they're about to do a warrant for arrest? Bad analogy, but uh, you got to show them the papers. So, so look, there's papers that are required in the great controversy. There's paperwork. Okay? And the paperwork has to prove consent. Huh? Now, look, primary consent is the best. Like when I say, Lord, come into my heart, God's like, I got consent. I got consent. Oh, by the way, uh, you never want to give consent to the other party because he's a squatter. He doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to leave. I was at a camp meeting one time and Someone walked into the teen tent, demon-possessed. Demon-possessed. And the pastors gathered around, cast the demon out of him, and he went from him to a Bible worker. The Bible worker was on the ground under, under the spell of the demon. And they finally got the demon out of that Bible worker, and they went to the Bible worker later for counseling. You know why. And they said, look, Something's wrong. Something's wrong. There's a reason why that demon had access. And he, you know what he said? He said, I know exactly what it is. He says, I know exactly what it is. So we can give consent in different ways, but you never want to give consent to the enemy. And we give consent through, uh, through surprisingly media. It, this, there was this one Christian that was talking to this, this witch on an airplane, and the witch was uh, telling telling this Christian, he says, like, look, I can, I can cast spells on anybody. 
I can cast spells on anybody. And he said, and the Christian said, not on me, I'm a Christian. And the witch said, well, let me ask you some questions. Do you view, do you view pornography? The Christian said, no. He said, what about, do you watch any movies? The Christian said, no. What about television? The Christian said, no. And he went down this list of media, and afterwards, the, the witch is like, yeah, you're right. I can't touch you. I can't touch you. And so there's things that we, can, we involve ourselves in that, that gives the devil a foothold, not necessarily demon possession, but demon, demonic oppression. And, and so consent is a powerful thing in the scheme of the great controversy. And what we see here is secondary consent. Powerful. Jesus saw their faith and was able to move in a powerful way above and beyond what he's normally able. So when you pray for somebody else, you're giving God the paperwork. All right, so that's an application. That's an application. One of the prayers that you can pray in devotional journal is saying, Lord, help me to care about people that are morally incapacitated. Help me to care enough to pray. There's a powerful book, Power of Prayer, Roger Morneau, and he talks about how prayer gives God legal right in the sight of the universe to act in someone else's life. So if you have a family member, a son, a daughter, whoever it may be that's out of the church, when you pray and say, Lord, and this is one of the, this is one of the most radical prayers that you can ever pray, Lord, whatever it takes, save me. Or save my children. Whatever it takes. What, what did it take to save Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, man, that's a... Ooh, that, that, that is, a, is a radical prayer. That is a radical prayer that I pray. I said, Lord, whatever it takes, save me. Because in the end, it's going to be worth it. In the end, it's going to be worth it. All right, so here's one, one example. So I, I'm hoping to illustrate to you the, the, the power of the word and, and how we can break down passages of Scripture. So, so here's another one. Here's another one. I'm just going to put it on the board for you and uh, how we can look at a passage. So, so here, uh, we, we know the, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, I don't know if that's the most accurate translation, but it's basically, right, there, there it is. Okay, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All right, now, it's easy to just gloss over this passage, but, but let's just make a few observations about it. One, one observation is that, uh, that you should love yourself. Huh? Now, we're not talking about narcissism, but we should have a healthy love for ourselves because we're a child of God. Hmm? So, so this says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now here's the thing. Um, I, I, uh, I was always the shortest kid in my class growing up. I had crooked teeth, had to have braces, struggled uh, with school after I almost lost my mind having malaria. But here's the thing. I still love myself. I still love myself. It's amazing. It's amazing what we can put up with when we have 
uh, uh, you ever find it's easy to, to, to give yourself, um, I guess for, for many, maybe not all, but uh, to be easier on yourself than you are on others? Sometimes we're harder on ourselves. But the point is this. A Christian should have a healthy love for themselves. But the other part of this is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, look, he didn't say love people, although this obviously applies to that. He didn't say love the world. He uses this interesting thing, neighbor, which means the person that is near you. Now, I have found, I have found that it's easy to love people as long as they're far away. <laughs> this, this, this is a, this is a, uh, this is a term of proximity. This is a term of proximity. In other words, as long as people are a concept or far away or a thousand miles away, but as soon as they become my neighbor, which means close enough to you, they are very difficult to love. You know what I'm talking about? I had this friend of mine. And we decided when we're going through school, hey, let's rent a house together. And suddenly, this friend, which before had been a thousand miles away, became my neighbor. And I would wake up, open the refrigerator, and go for my soy milk, and it was gone. <laughs> I'd come home one day, got a product from Apple, and I couldn't find it anywhere. From Amazon, and my neighbor had opened my package. And I was like, ooh. You know what I'm talking about? Dirty socks left out in the living room. You know, all of these things are driving me up the wall. And the Lord's like, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. And, and so here, here is the practical application. Like, look, you can love anybody if you love your neighbor. The person that is close to you. Because we can love people as long as they're a certain distance away from us. But as soon as they become in proximity, close to us, then they are our neighbor. And Jesus says, you need to love them as much as you love yourself. As much as you love yourself. When that person cuts you off on I-66, does all this four-letter words and all this stuff coming out of their mouth and everything, all these flashing these signs and so forth. Jesus is like, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. That person that butts in front of you at Subway, all right, trying to get their ham sandwich, that's your neighbor. And so this is really a very practical way of applying this principle. This is, this is, this is about proximity. This is about proximity. But when you follow in your devotional life and you actually look at the words and the meaning of the words and you apply them to your life, then, then the scriptures come alive. And that's where it really starts cutting. The Bible says it's, uh, the, the word is like, is, like a, is like a sword. It cuts to the intent of the heart. And, and this, this is the thing. Is like, and in married life, you have a perpetual neighbor. <laughs> 
you know what I'm talking about. All right, and, uh, and so forth. That, that's the reality. That's the reality uh, of the Christian experience. All right, so let's go to a few other passages here. As we, as we go through our study, I'm just trying to go through lesson after lesson. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. I'm just trying to illustrate ways that you can have devotions in, your, in the morning. Okay, observation, interpretation, imagination, application. So this is a simple one that we can look at very quickly in Matthew chapter 8. And when he had come down from the mountain... Great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Okay, so there's three verses there. There's three verses there. Uh, What what do you observe about this passage? Let's kind of do this together. Very quickly. So what do you observe about this passage? Anything unique about this passage? Okay, there's a big crowd. Big crowd. And, and who, who comes to Jesus? A leper. A leper. Unclean. Unclean. All right. So, so just to put it in modern terms here, let's say that someone walked into the back of this room who had Ebola. You know what Ebola is? Ebola is highly contagious. You ever see in, in West Africa these, these, these people that are trying to treat people that have Ebola? They look like they're going to the moon. You know what I'm talking about? It's like... And so highly... So if, if someone walked in having Ebola, you know what Ebola, uh, the symptoms of Ebola are? You, you bleed to death out of every orifice. You bleed out your eyes, your nose, your ears. I mean, it is the most gruesome way to die. So let's say someone is literally bleeding out of their eyes and they walk in the back door. Where would you head? <laughs> I mean, we're all, we're all ah, you know what I'm talking about? And this boy's like, I got Ebola, you know? It's like, we're all. Okay, so that's the scene. Literally pandemonium. Pandemonium, all right? We're, we're like, I mean, you and me both. I mean, I'm not sticking around for this. I'm like, I'm the first one out, okay? I got kids, all right? So I'm just, I'm just, so, so we're, we're all headed out there. All right, so that, that's the emotion of this passage. That's the emotion. So you just want to get into the passage. That's, that's what's taking place. Man with Ebola walks in to the sanctuary. All right? We're headed for the exit. But there's one crazy guy. That's like... <laughs> right? It's like, oh! You're like... Okay, and um, and the Greek is very interesting because uh, there, there's a little bit of debate about this Greek because it says that Jesus reached out, Jesus touched him, but but there's another interpretation of the Greek that that could indicate that he actually hugged him. Okay, touch or hug when you have Ebola, same thing. Okay, same thing, and so so this we're all headed for the exit, and 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 one guy goes over. That, that's, the, that's the emotion of the passage. That's the emotion. Okay? So, but this, this is where the imagination comes in. Because if you just do left brain, you lose the emotion. But, but Ellen White says we should enter into the thoughts and the feelings of what's taking place here. And that's what makes it come alive. All right? And one way you do it is by, by having a modern counterpart. Because we don't have a reference point 
for leprosy. But when you say Ebola, you're like, oh, you know, emotion already there. So imagine that, okay, or touching somebody. Now, now we switch to left brain right now. We want to switch to left brain. Look at the sequence. Look at the sequence of how Jesus interacts with the person that has Ebola, leprosy, okay? It wasn't like he comes in and he's like, you're clean. <laughs> and then he's like, huh? That's an important sequence, right? <laughs> it's easy to hug somebody once they're clean, right? He didn't say, you're clean. No. He goes, you're clean. Hmm? Okay, so that's left brain. The order is significant. The order is significant. And then you ask yourself the research question, why? Why? Why do you do it like that? What, what, what's, what's the lesson? What's the principle? What was he trying to illustrate? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, love people that haven't come up to our standards yet. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He just gave the greatest sermon. He just gave the greatest sermon ever preached. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and so that's also a yeah. context yeah. that the great multitude have just heard the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh-huh. And it's almost like Jesus now, like, practically personifies. Yeah. 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 So literally, so... So imagine, imagine, you don't have to imagine because he's here. Mark Finley preaches, right? <laughs> Mark Finley preaches, and, the, and, his, and, and he's walking out the door, and he meets the guy with Ebola. So th that's, that's the context. That's the context. Someone else said, now, now look, look, you want to you do it macro. What, what does this tell us? What does this tell us about the gospel? Come as you are. Just the way you are. As bad as you are. Now, now look. Look. Um, because, because Jesus says something to the man. He says, I'm willing be, be what? Be cleansed. Be cleansed. Does God want to cleanse you? Does God want to cleanse you? Absolutely. But, but, but look, at, look at the way that this thing works. Look at the way that the, this thing works. Jesus touches the man before he cleanses him. Now, now the, the significance of a touch for a leper is significant, okay? Because you don't touch lepers. I, who knows the last time this man had been touched by someone that, that was clean, right? So, so what did that, I'm just going to touch my brother's shoulders here. What, what did that touch signify to that man? 
Acceptance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what I just saw was the hmm. heart of God. The heart of God. Because what it yeah. told me yeah. is that God's heart was like this, which allowed him to be this. Yeah, yeah. And when you see the heart of God, it totally changes the other person's perspective. Wow, wow, the heart of God, the heart of God. So, so that touch, that touch, what did it mean to the leper? Acceptance. Acceptance. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. When it, th this is a beautiful example of the gospel because leprosy in the Bible is a symbol of sin. Okay? And the order that Jesus does this is significant. Is significant. Justification. Justification is the covering. Sanctification is the cleansing. Hmm? Justification is the covering. Sanctification is the cleansing. And in this act, Jesus is illustrating, look, his acceptance of us, his love for us, transcends our condition. You following me? He loves you. He loves the world regardless of our condition. It's not predicated on that. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. I mean, he doesn't leave us in that condition. But, uh, but this is a beautiful thing, is that, is that God's love for me, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we treat people like, um, you know, it's like clean yourself up and then I'll love you. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I, I remember when, when I was pastoring, when I was pastoring uh, the University Church in East Lansing, there was this one homeless man that started coming to the church. And he had, he had diabetes, and it was affecting his feet. His feet were literally rotting. And his shoes, his shoes had these slits in the side of them, and there was, there was pus that was oozing out of the side of his shoes. Okay? So, so diabetes, feet are rotting, and, and they're oozing. They're oozing. And that wasn't the worst of it. The smell. The smell. And so this man, I was wondering why in church... Everyone was sitting on this side. <laughs> I was just like, everyone was like, the, almost the whole church was sitting on this side. And this man was sitting on this side. There was a few around him within like 10 feet and so forth. And, and look, the, the smell, it, it, was, it, was, it was putrefying. I mean, I've never smelled, it, it smelled like a, a, a rotting carcass. That's what it was like. And there was this one Sabbath school class that he would attend. And it was this closed room in the corner. I can picture it today. And, and people would come out of there coughing and gagging and everything like that. And this man was coming to church. It's coming. This man was coming to church. All right? And, and, the thing was, and the thing was, we had a nurse practitioner. We had a nurse practitioner that, um, that ministered to this man. And I, I remember the day she was like, look, I, I want to... I want to help you with your feet. And, uh, and so I, I got her a room, and she went in there, and she, she treated his feet. 
She treated his feet. And uh, man, I saw the heart of God. I saw the heart of God in that moment. And, and, and it just reminds me that to heaven, us, we're like that. You following me? We're, we're, we're like that. For, for, I think angels, every time they come down here, they're like, hold your breath. You, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, we need to go down to that cesspool, that sewer. You know what I mean? But they love us. They love us. But, but even more than that, Jesus came down here. Jesus came down here. And, and the thing is, to heaven, we are vile. We are vile. But what this reveals is, even the vile state that we're in, God is not like, look, go take a shower, and then I'll love you. He's like, no. He's like, I love you in this state. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just like that. Just like that. But he loves us too much to leave us in that condition. Right? But, but that acceptance is real. And that's why Jesus didn't say, you're clean. He said, he touched him. He touched him. Yeah. There's so much here. Three verses. Yeah. Yeah. He was willing. Yeah. Yeah. I need help. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. So there's so much in here, as you said. Three verses, three verses, but you have to pause. You have to pause. Observation, interpretation, imagination, application. So, so how do we apply this to our lives? You say, Lord, Lord, is there something to thank God for in this passage? For the heart of God? Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you are. Have you ever been, been tempted to feel like God doesn't accept you? You know? <laughs> I mean, it's like we, we deal with these insecurities all the time. But here you can see into the heart of God. And, and then you write your prayer response to God. I mean, this is, we're journaling and, and the power of this thing takes place. And, and the thing is, uh, you, you cannot underestimate writing because writing is thinking. That's, that's what writing is. When you write, that's thinking. And you're crystallizing your thoughts in your devotional life. Any other reflections before we go on? Oh, I have so much to cover. So little time. So let's go to another, let's go to another passage here. Let's go to another passage here. Let's go to, let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Okay, so Matthew chapter 18 is that, that famous relational chapter. <laughs> but, uh, but in Matthew 18 is, is, this, is this unique parable. Is this unique parable. And we'll, we'll close with this one. Do we have time? We've got like 15 minutes, right? We've got 15 minutes. All right, so we'll, we'll close with this unique parable. So Matthew 18, verse 21. I'm just going to read through this parable very quickly, okay? It's just a few verses, and then I'll make a few observations, and then we'll close. 
Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my sin, my brother's sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said unto him, I do not say unto you seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had. Then the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. So you know the story. You know the story. So there's this one servant. He owes a lot of money. He's forgiven. He's forgiven. Then he walks out of that forgiveness, and then he sees another guy, and he physically assaults him. You can say he gets him by the throat and says, look, give me back what I owe. All right? And then he loses his forgiveness. He loses his forgiveness. That's the story. Everyone familiar with this passage, or do I have to read it all the way through? All right, so that's the passage. Now, here's a few observations about this. Here's a few observations about this. There's a unique... <laughs> when you look at this story, there, there is a unique, uh, what we call, interdependent relationship between three parties. You have the king, you have the servant... And you have what you call the fellow servant. Okay? And, and this is on the theme of forgiveness. Okay? So in Matthew 18, you have this vertical relationship. There is a clear hierarchy in this one. You have the king and the servant. Now, the king forgives the servant. All right? The servant does not forgive his fellow servant, but this is a peer relationship. The unique thing about this story is that this is what we call an interdependent relationship. Uh, do you remember back in the day, I don't know if they still do it like this, but uh, they have these Christmas lights, these Christmas lights that, that when one bulb goes out, what happens? They all go out. They all, do they still do that? I don't know. I don't know. They don't do that anymore because they were wired in what they call a series circuit or what you call a daisy chain. Okay? So when one light goes out, they all go out. Now here's the thing. Is that, is that in this one, when one light goes out, what happens up here? This goes out. You following me? Okay? So this is like the parallel universe, <laughs> or, or what we call the interdependent relationship here. So, so the servant's lack of forgiveness of his fellow servant leads to the lack of forgiveness here, or the loss of forgiveness here. Now, when you look in Scripture, when you look in Scripture, forgiveness is many times in three. It's a party of three. Now, typically, we think of it in party of two, in terms of like what I do to my brother uh, and, and this interdependent or, or this dynamic of this relationship. But what this shows us is that we should think of forgiveness in parties of three. In other words, the person that hurts me and God. And God. So what happens here happens here. In other words... When I choose not to forgive my brother, I'm also cutting off 
my forgiveness from God. Look in the Lord's Prayer. Do you see this? Lord, forgive us our debts. Right? As we forgive our debtors. Three. Three. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, When it comes to this notion of forgiveness... This reality has God forgiven you for a lot of stuff. For things that you don't even want to think about again. Forgiveness is to flow from God to me to those who hurt me, to those who hurt me. I'll just close with this, with this uh, short story. And it was, it was during the Batista Revolution. And uh, Gracila Martinez in Cuba watched her son be killed by her persecutors. And the last words of Gracila Martinez's son to her mother was, Father, not Father, forgive them or they will be the victors. And, uh, and she says this later on. I only forgave when I saw how destructive my hate was, how it consumed my energies and crippled my friendships and disabled any good that I wanted to do. I wanted to be freed from the prison that I had erected in my life. I saw finally the truth of my son's last words. When we return hatred to those who hate us, we fall into playing their game according to their rules and do them the favor of hurting ourselves. So, you know, just a practical application there in terms of forgiveness. But I, as, as we wrap up here in the last few minutes in your personal devotional life, I, I hope this has been a blessing to you in being able to capture the text. We've just gone through a few passages here, and you've seen like when you pause, pray, and, and let the text speak to you and minister to your soul, how much of a blessing it can be. And the text comes alive. It comes alive and, and ministers to your soul. So in a nutshell, in a nutshell, remember Daniel's devotional life in Daniel chapter 6. All right? Daniel's a type of the last generation. Daniel means God is my judge. Laodicea means a people judged. Daniel's devotional life had a rhythm, routine, and ritual. Same time, same place, the same way. We are people of ritual. So I want to encourage you. The next morning starts when? The night before. The night before. Have a rhythm. I encourage you to write it down. I've written down my my evening ritual. It's like clockwork. It's like clockwork. As I noted earlier, I set out my clothes the night before. I put my journal out, my Bible on the kitchen table. So when I get up, it's just grab and go. Just do it. And so the night before has a rhythm. When I get up the next morning, it has a certain rhythm. Now, I travel, and, and it can get a little bit, you know, with jet lag and so forth, but, but I always have a way to fine-tune it and get it back in terms of 
in terms of the regularity of the moment. So I think that uh, this, is, this is the area of our lives that we, we must make a priority. Amen? By the grace of God. And, and you can pray and say, Lord, help me with my devotional life. Is that your desire? Is that your desire? And say, Lord, help me to be willing to be made willing. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity that we have to spend time with you each and every day. Oh, Lord, may not the cares of this life crowd out our time with you. Create in each one of us a deeper desire for you. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, everyone. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.